1: This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the place to go get digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a large variety of genres, and you can play them on any digital listening device in your possession, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, whatever you got. And here's a killer deal, everybody, right now for listeners of this program. Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get Hitch 22, the memoir by the late great Christopher Hitchens, or how about The Golden Age, a novel by the late great Gore Vidal, or how about Schopenhauer in 90 Minutes, if you want to brush up on your Schopenhauer, that's by Paul Strathern. any one of these titles can be yours free of charge, and if you do this, if you get the free audiobook, it helps the program, I get a little kickback. That's sort of nice. To download your free audio book, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is an amazing deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God.
2: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
1: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I
2: think it's really beautiful. Gee, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just
0: one person at just one
1: time. Oh, right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a full-fledged listening experience. This is also, for me, a bit of a talking experience. Thank you for being here. Thank you for tuning in. I do appreciate it. Uh, what can I tell you? I am a little bit freaked out right now. Uh, I have a suspicious mole. It's on my clavicle. It's sort of pink. Uh, it might not even really be a mole because it's sort of pink. It's about the size of a very small pencil eraser. It's not the size of a pencil eraser, but it's pencil eraser-ish. Maybe, uh, you know, half of a pencil eraser. It's it's slightly, ever so slightly raised up, and I think it's kind of itchy, unless that's all in my head. And I made the mistake uh, of Googling skin cancer earlier this morning and have subsequently spent the entire rest of my day in a state of dread and low-level panic worried that i am dying uh it's never a good idea to google anything medical online ever uh, or almost ever and uh, i did also just for the record make an appointment with a dermatologist uh just in case you know i'm not uh, i'm not taking any chances here it could be something it could be nothing i don't know uh, but i'm going to find out and uh yeah you know like i like I never go out in the sun anymore either. I should say I'm a shut in essentially uh, like not really, but kind of, and I certainly don't walk around with my shirt off and uh you know, but when I was younger, this was not the case. I was more carefree, I was more nonchalant in my approach to radiation uh but of course, all of that has changed over time, and I can only hope uh, that this is nothing that I'm freaking out for no good reason that my google induced day of mortal fear has been entirely My guest today is Carl Taro Greenfeld. He is an accomplished journalist who has written for The Nation magazine, Time magazine, and Sports Illustrated. Uh, he's authored six books, including the brand new Triberbia, a novel now available from Harper. He's an interesting guy. He's led an interesting life. He's had an interesting career. He's lived in other countries. He's worked in other countries. He's had some fascinating and sometimes extreme experiences, and he and I are going to talk about all of it. Right now, here he is, ladies and gentlemen mr carl taro greenfeld
2: uh, yeah i've been around i mean this was yeah i mean because I, I, uh, I was journa- 'm a journalist i 've been a journalist for so long, and i traveled uh, and for work i, would, I you know I, would, I, would, I, I had to travel and I lived for a long time in in tokyo that 's what my first book was about, and then I lived in uh, uh, in Hong Kong, I was running a mag. I ran a magazine in Tokyo. I ran a magazine in, in Hong Kong, and lived, you know, just all points in between, and and kept going back. And I, I launched a magazine in Beijing, Sports Illustrated China. So I just had, had a whole range of international experience, mostly in the Far East, and so that's why a lot of my short fiction, and and, and journalism was always set there. My first two books were, were were set in. First three books were set in 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 the Far East. So I, that was, that's always been the, the, the sort of – most of my international sort of postings have always been in the Far East, but I've, I've gone all around. Uh, my wife is German, so we spend a lot of time uh, in Europe and, and the Netherlands and Belgium where her family's kind of situated. So, so I have a pretty good range of, of, of international experience, and I draw from that all the time, especially in, in writing short stories, I find.
1: Uh, why is that? I mean, just because? Uh, I mean, w- what about the form lends itself well to kind of melding with travel experiences?
2: Well, uh, this is. I mean, really. I mean, years ago, I would write most of these things and and publish them as as fiction. Excuse me, as nonfiction. So a lot of my journalism and in my first two books of of uh, which are journals, which are which published as nonfiction, are sort of very. I guess they, they. I would term them creative nonfiction in that it was very narrative-driven, short. Pieces like five thousand word pieces about Japan or about Southeast Asia or about China, and and they very much had a short story arc. I was finding characters, and then getting into their history and their backstory, and then sort of omnisciently recreating their their lives and in you know through scenes and dialogue. And it for, for I, I considered it journalism, but I think. You could easily have have accused me of you know doing some kind of of non journalistic practices in there, and this was this was in in the 90s, and I think that one of the things that happened was that I think the 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 definition of journalism has become a little bit stricter and a little bit more restrictive in terms of what you can get away with, and so I. I began. So a couple things happened. I began to become more of a mainstream journalist in that I got a job at Time Magazine, became a writer for Time Magazine, where a lot of the narrative liberties I was taking in terms of forming my stories would no longer be permitted. You couldn't get away with that shit at Time Magazine. You know what I mean? Time Magazine is more, much more straightforward. So I was no longer able to sort of write the elaborate and sort of fanciful narratives that I was writing in my journalism prior to that point. So looking for that kind of creative outlet for my work and and because i like writing stories that you know i, I love I, I love i've always been a narrative writer and 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 looking to, in order to keep doing that i had to switch to fiction and so i think strangely enough most of my almost all of my first stories are set in the far east and and i think what i was doing is 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 doing the same sort of work that I used to do in my journalism and nonfiction, only now I was just calling it fiction. It's just really a a matter of labeling more than anything else, and then publishing it as fiction. I mean, certainly once I was no longer worried about passing myself, passing my work off somehow as nonfiction or to be acceptable as nonfiction, I was able to take more liberties in the narrative and make the stories better. But really it was just sort of to satisfy a creative yen that I just began writing fiction because I could no longer satisfy that in nonfiction. I mean, a few things happened. There were writers getting in trouble all the time, sort of starting, I guess, in around, I mean, with Stephen Glass. When was that? The late 90s. That guy from the New Republic who was uh, fabricating stories. And so writers began to get in trouble for making stuff up. So I was like, first of all, I didn't want to get in trouble. <laughs> so I thought I got to straighten my act out, you know, before I, before I get busted. So I switched and began writing more nonfiction, uh, and, excuse me, began writing more fiction. And my nonfiction became very, you know, all the nonfiction I published since then, or most of it anyway, has been very strictly uh, you, you know, journalistically kosher.
1: Well, and it's, it, but it's, I mean, the, you talk about the blurring of the lines and the, and the, and the process of labeling. And uh, I think it is true that there's such a, uh, there's such a fine line, you know, drawn between fiction and nonfiction oftentimes. And, uh, obviously, I mean, there is like a just the facts journalism, um, that I think, uh, sort of stands up on its own, but you know, you think about like the new journalists and you think about, um, so much of what we read and you, you do have to wonder. And, and you also, I mean, I also find myself wondering, um, I don't know how much it matters in certain instances, you know, I guess in, in. Like a political context, for an example, like you obviously don't want somebody taking creative liberties, you know, if you're trying to f- figure out what's happening. <laughs> but, uh,
2: yeah, I, mean, I think we know. I think mean, when you're dealing with issues of state, with issues of of, of l- legal matters, political matters, issues that affect the population or affect the you know the, the state security, national security, I think then you do want there to be a New York Times standard of of rigorous uh, sourced journalism. And there is a place for that. And I would never pretend that there's no difference between that and some of the stuff I was doing. But I always viewed the kind of nonfiction I was writing as being primarily entertainment. I didn't see it as acting, you know, sort of as, as, as educational material, or, or that I was covering or unveiling state secrets or anything like that. I was really just writing stories that I thought people would love reading. And so I think, I mean, that's really the difference. I think when you're, when you're reading nonfiction, where part of the enjoyment is in the actual writing and telling of the tale and the experience you're having as a reader as you go along, that's a fundamentally different experience than reading a story where what matters is the information. What matters is that the Supreme Court has ruled five to four in favor or against This particular case, it's just two different experiences, and I think I I think I don't think you can you can even equate the two, and and I find it unfortunate when all of nonfiction is held to the standard of 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 strict and rigorous sourced honesty because or because I, I think you're 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 losing something very fundamental, which is once something is written on the page. Once something is is, is, is is published, it also is going to function, or it, it it can also function as a kind of art. And the best journalism and the best nonfiction, or the, the, what I consider the best, has always functioned as art. It's a kind of art. And I think one of the one of the great misfortunes of living in the internet age is that journalism has become much more closely held. It's, it, journalists are much more careful. They're not willing to. To take chances. They're not as expansive in their storytelling because everyone is so afraid of getting caught. Okay. Everyone's so afraid that they're going to make some mistake and they're going to get, you're going to get in trouble. So, so you know, you look at the great stories of the past. You look at Tom Wolfe and, 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 and the Pump House Gang and and some, you know, Joan Didion and all, all this stuff. I mean, was that stuff really 100% on the button, you know, factually accurate? Um, maybe, maybe not. I don't give a shit. I don't think it matters, but the point is, today, would some of that stuff be picked apart in a completely different way
0: than when it
2: was published, when very likely the, the kids in La Jolla who the Pump House gang were about probably never even read that story? Right. You know, now you, like, now you know any story you write, the people who you write about are going to see it immediately, and if there's any problems in it, you're going to hear about it. The first, you know, the first years of my career as a writer, write publishing in, in, in American magazines... Nobody I wrote about probably ever even read my stories. The people in the stories probably never even saw them because the internet didn't exist. And how are they going to get a copy of of, of you know details or Vogue or whatever it was? And so it's just a, it's just a very different time in terms of, of how careful you should be as a journalist and how careful I am when I'm writing nonfiction. I'm just very aware. Okay, I have to play by this set of rules, which is which is a, you know which requires that I be much more factually. Uh, precise that I, you know, make sure that, 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 um, you know, that, that, that the, 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 the chronology isn't somehow manipulated to create an impression, uh, of events that, that, that may not have happened as, as I've laid them out. I, I think that, you know, those, those kind of things, which I was much more comfortable with doing earlier in my career, chronology is a great way to manipulate a story. um, that kind of thing now, I, ha- you know, I have to be more careful about, and, that- and that's why, in order to sort of satisfy my urge to tell, to tell stories, I-, I switched over and began writing fiction.
1: Well, no, and it's interesting to hear you say that because, like, it-, it sounded when you first said it a little bit counterintuitive. This idea that journalism has somehow um, become more formalized or more careful in the age of the internet, because um, I think a lot of people would say that, like, you know, journalism has actually gotten less careful in the age of the Internet because, you know, anybody can sort of call themselves a journalist and there's the rise of the blogosphere and all this other stuff, but, um, you know.
2: Well, it, that's a good point. I mean, I think, there, well, there's different standards still. I mean, we understand that something written, you know, on, on a small blog or on a, on, on, you know, not heavily trafficked blog just has a different standard of veracity than, than something that's published in a, in a mainstream publication we just accept that for one thing because if something's on a blog or something's online it can be changed immediately right so there isn't nearly as much uh... worry about uh... you know about libel and being sued because you can just change it um, and so it's you know in, in some ways i think it's it's less the uh... the, the onus is, is a little bit less on the the writer to get things exactly right because they can just fix it later but. The the, the the problem is any there's also much because that same that same scrutiny also makes the writer much more much less willing to take the risks in storytelling that we may well that that, that I think we were willing to take in a previous time because now you know once I publish this everyone's going to look at it everyone's going to see it and here's this one area which is God it's a great scene and it's really good but I'm a little squishy about it like it mean you know I mean it might not really have played the way I've written it in the past you'd be like or i would have been like oh fuck it i'm just going to run it because it's so good now you do it and you would know you're just going to hear from people bitching about it and complaining and then they're going to start you know sh- you know shooting darts at you so you're going to so 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 I'd be like you know what i'm just not going to put that in i'm just going to do the more boring story because it's it's less bother
1: yeah well no it, it almost like makes me makes me think that there should be like a new genre like i almost wish there was a signifier so that i could know i was reading something by uh, a journalist or I was reading something that has like strong nonfiction qualities. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like,
2: uh, Well, I think, that, I think, I mean, there is, it's, it's memoir. Yeah. I mean, I think mem- memoir is understood to be uh, an area that is, I mean, despite, you know, the memoir police who occasionally come out when, when someone's perceived to <laughs> have gone too far right. in, in, in making stuff up like James Fry. I mean, I mean, you know, like the character in my book, I, I think the, the, we understand that memoir is anything that's, that's, that's filtered through one person's experience and largely a collection of memories is, is inherently flawed. It, it's inherently not accurate. It's in, it's, it, you know, it, it's, it's basically just one person's version of events. And, and, and so I think we, we, we accept memoirs being an in-between area most of the time, but sometimes you still get people get in trouble for it. And it's a little bit arbitrary why, one guy gets in trouble and another person doesn't. James Fry gets in trouble and David Sedaris doesn't.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, th- I thought about that a lot when uh, the whole James Fry thing went down. Like, there had to have been so many um, memoirists, and particularly memoirists like a huge readership and with a lot, you know, with a lot more at stake who must have been a little bit nervous.
2: <laughs> so everyone was nervous. I mean, you know, everyone gets nervous. And then I was astonished by how other, you know, some other memoirs were sort of, uh, you know, who I don't want to name, who 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 in their books, Plainly you know are recreating dialogue from when they're three or four years old and things like that came out and publicly were flagellating James Fry for for cooking his own book right uh, I was amazed by because if you've ever written memoir and you know and I've, I've, I've done too you you know that you're, you're, you' you have no choice but to construct some connective material in certain places to get ideas across and to get to the next place and to get to the next scene and to to, to you know to make the story coherent and to make the the, the personalities come kind of alive you have to do that
1: well yeah um, and it's like and it's like too like unless you're working from really well uh documented source material like my memory is so bad that like uh, you know i've sat down and tried to write memoir stuff before and i'm just think i'm sitting there thinking to myself like i have no idea if this is true you know
2: like, <laughs> i just well, don't I, just, I don't have the recall I, in my, my last book, In boy, alone, which is a book about my younger brother, my autistic younger brother Noah. Uh, you know, my, my father had written three books about our family. Um, they were all published. A child called Noah, which was the first of them, did quite well. And my brother had become sort of a very famous uh, autistic person in the '70s, maybe one of the most famous autistic kids uh, of that period. And so I actually had, and, and these books were basically diaries of my, of my. Uh, Childhood because you know it was about our family, and my father took his diaries and sort of repurposed them into these books and so I had this actual chronology of my childhood that I was looking at while I was doing my book and it 's amazing how how often you know my memories diverged from what my father was, was was had written down and his his diaries in theory are contemporaneous with the events, so therefore it, usually by the standards of of, of uh, of journalistic accuracy measurement contemporaneous accounts are given more weight than retrospective accounts than 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 memory accounts right in the, in the courtroom uh, any contemporaneous account is, has more has, has more relevance and or more validity than something hearsay being recalled later um yet so, sometimes my my father's account so differed from what i was remembering that i you know that i would uh, you know, that I, that I would ask him, I would actually, I, I, you know, I, I said, what's going on? This is that. He said, oh, you know, when we were doing, uh, the, you know, the Noah books, there would be periods where there wasn't that much going on. So I would take some entries from other parts and put them in those days. So it seemed like there was more going on in that period. So I was like, oh, great. So even... In my this this thing is about my own childhood, where I can where I'm trying to reconstruct my own childhood through this these records and through my memories. It turns out some, something's been cooked in there, <laughs> and then and then even more confusing, there would be stuff that I was sure I remembered with like incredible precision and incredible incredible vividness, and I was I was going back and rereading his books, and I would come upon that memory written word for word in my father's books. And realized that no i was i didn't remember it. I actually had read it in his book right. years ago, and that had become a memory of mine right so i became yeah you know, so I, I realized that memory is so inherently flawed and so inherently inaccurate that to say it has any more weight or validity than a constructed narrative you know and and now we 're getting a bit too academic for my liking, but to, to, you know, it, it, it's actually a hard argument to make, especially when you get into the neuroscience of it and you realize that every time you access a memory, basically a, a, a sort of a, a cluster of neurons or a group of neurons is firing. All these cells are firing in your brain, and those, that, that those, those cells are your memory, in effect. But each time you access the memory, a different group of neurons fires. It's slightly different each time. So each time you access a memory, you're also changing it a little. That's just how brain function is. So the accuracy of memory is, 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 is not only is, is it dubious, it's also, from a neurological perspective, impossible, right. meaning your memory shifts naturally over time. It just starts to change in grades because you don't, your, your brain doesn't fire the same neuronal cluster every time. So it's a really interesting discussion. I mean, that said, I think we all know when, we're, when we feel like we're being had.
1: Well, no, it's like it's (laughs) it's just. I think I think what I'm like uh, advocating is like you know when you say memoir, that's of course correct. Like that's sort of like the the blended genre. I just wish that there were more uh, descriptive honesty. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I'm almost. I think I'm almost like dreaming of a genre that requires like multiple sentences to describe it. Like this is journalism with some. Uh, fabrication right. included for the purposes of artistic, you know, like.
2: Right, You, right. See, what
1: I'm saying? you see what I'm driving at? It just feels like, yeah, yeah. just feels well, like in, we're not know, in, honest about it,
2: you know. In, in Japan, they do have that. It's funny. In Japan, they have novels. In Japan, they have fiction, nonfiction. There's categories like tampon shosetsu, I think it is, it's like first person story, they call it. It's sort of like memoir. It's first person story. It's an eye story. And it's understood that this first person story is what it is. It's just someone's version of things, and you can. Take that for what it's worth. I like that. Um, the eye, yeah, story, I mean, and, the eye and, and, story. The eye story, and I think, and 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 I think that's what I mean. I think that's what memoir, you know, really should be. But that said, there's something very powerful when we read a memoir. When we read Primo Levi, uh, you know, this, describing his his, you know, his experience in Auschwitz. If we felt in some way that he wasn't being as truthful as he could be, that would definitely detract from the power of, the, of, the, of that reading experience. Right. So there's certain certain times when hundred you know, being able to trust the author to to be as accurate as he can be really matters and makes the reading experience more powerful. So it's a strange thing. Like you know, we can be cavalier, and, and I'm very and I, I'm very cavalier about. Uh, you know the, what the story is for the story to decide, and I trust the story, and I just want to be entertained. But that said, there's instances where I have to say, well, wait a second. Sometimes I do want to believe that what I'm reading is the absolute truth,
1: right, and like, or, or
2: maybe... as close to the truth as it can be. So you know, I want to have my cake and eat it too, and and that's not really fair. So you know, really, there's there's a lot of ways to look at this. I, I just never think it's as cut and dried as the facts police want it to be,
1: right. Right, and, it's, uh, it's, you know,
2: and, and that's what sort of emerged The internet has allowed the emergence of like A larger uh, a contingent Of sort of journalism police Who are sort of running around trying to bust people For sort of, you know When it's an important crime, that's one thing When it's a trivial crime, you know, I just don't care And I feel like there's, there's some You know, there, there's a tendency now To try to find, you know these Factual inaccuracy and things To discredit the writer And I'm not sure how that's really benefiting, uh, you know, any cause.
1: Yeah. Well, so how did you get into all this? How did you get into journalism? Like, tell me a little bit about, uh, your background and your career and stuff.
2: Yeah. I, I grew up in California, was uh, born in Japan, grew up in California, went to Palisades high school, came back east to go to college, uh, at, at, Sarah Lawrence college. Um, after college, I, I went, I, I went back to Japan. So where-
1: why were you born in Japan?
2: Oh, I'm half Japanese. My mom is Japanese and my, and my dad's American.
1: Okay.
2: Uh, so I was born in Kobe, Japan. Uh, lived there just when I was you know, baby child. Came back to uh, uh, America. Uh, and then as soon as I was sort of old enough to, which was for me right after college or, or shortly after college, I went back to Japan uh, where I was fortunate enough to get a job at a uh, daily newspaper uh, the Asahi Evening News, which was this, the English-language version of a Japanese newspaper. And the place was kind of a joke, but it was it was a good place for me in that I was eager and, and I wanted to write, and, and they would let me write almost anything I wanted. Um, so, you know, it was kind of one of these places where after a few months, you know, I was writing, you know, the book reviews, the movie reviews. I had a column. I'm doing front-page stories on you know, Dan Quayle coming to visit Japan, or you know, or Dick Cheney came to visit Japan. I mean, so I was, would, I was, would, you know, I, I, so it was a place where if you wanted to write, you could fill up the newspaper. And so I began to do. I mean, I remember I, I think I published like a whole broadside page review of like a Saul Bellow novella. Um, you know, like stuff like that. So I could really, I could just really write anything I wanted. So that was a great job for me. Uh, and and uh, I mean, it was difficult because it's an afternoon paper, so. Uh, you have to and the afternoon paper would close around noon so you have to be in the office really early to file stories but it was it was great for me and it was a, you know great first kind of job in journalism and then uh uh i got a i got a job at something called the Tokyo Journal where i was the managing editor and that was a monthly english language uh city paper news uh, magazine and uh learned a lot there editing people uh, and then from there I got into, uh, and I was always writing. And then from there I just began writing for American magazines. I was very lucky in that the world was very interested in Japan at that point, or the U.S. was very interested in Japan. They'd like sort of when was, back,
1: when was this? This was like what? The... This is
2: like the this like the early nineties. Yeah. And and looking back, it's almost like quaint the notion that you know Japan was seen as, as as this great global threat that Americans were worried about a Japanese takeover. I mean, that seems almost. Pleasant now, compared to the various other prospects of, of, of <laughs> who's going to take over who's going to take over the earth um, but uh, so there was this great interest in Japan and, and no one was really i mean there were, everyone had bureaus over there, all the big American publications I mean Tokyo was, was, was then a very important international uh, uh, posting, but nobody was covering or, or nobody was really writing about sort of the Japanese subcultures and youth culture and and criminal cultures and and pop cultures and all these these other things. The Japanese story then was like this economic story or like this business story or like this trade dispute story. And so I just began writing about, you know, motorcycle gangs and porn stars and and rock bands and, and, you know, criminals, yakuza, speed dealers and, and, and different just little subculture groups, mainly people I knew. Uh, you know, I was I was young. I was in my tw- you know early 20s, and and, and these were uh, just people I sort of knew from going out, and so I just began writing their stories, and I was able to get those stories into like, uh, you know, good American magazines like you know, Details and the New York Times Magazine published my stuff, and, and Vogue, and and just and, and Wired, and the Nation, and also I, I was able to I was kind of able to to sort of use this weird niche that I found and, and publish these, these articles in American magazines and, and, and then get them to take a chance on me because they weren't really getting this stuff from anywhere else.
1: How, how, well, and, how well connected were you? Like, was, it, was it a matter of like knowing somebody who knew somebody or were you like literally just querying somebody out of the blue and getting yeses?
2: Thank, well, well, thank God the fax machine was invented. Uh, because before that, I don't know how you do it. No, I had a fax machine. At Tokyo Journal, we had a fax machine, and, and I used to send out, you know, like 20 faxes a day. To like, I would I would call New York. You know, the time difference was like 12 hours. So I would, yeah, cold call an editor, maybe get his assistant, her assistant, and just say, Hey, this is you know Carl Tower Greenfield so calling from Tokyo. I'd love to, to pitch a story. What's your fax number? Get the fax number, and then and then just send in these crazy query letters that I had written, which were like complete fabrication the queries were just like scenes i constructed out of whole cloth like just these crazy visions of these you know gangsters you know chopping up a kilo of coke or something and you know in a tokyo nightclub <laughs> and i would send, i would send in these crazy things and they were really exciting i mean they looked great and so i would get magazine editors interested and 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 get them to assign stories and i would i do these stories and that was sort of my my entree into it was was uh I, I, was write, I was writing about this exotic country that people happened to, to be uh, taken with at that point. And, uh, and that, was, that became my book. That became Speed Drives.
1: Okay, so and now I, what about these query letters? I want to stop you just because I feel like my listeners might be interested in this. And I'm not sure if the approach that you were using back then via fax is even applicable now in the age of the you know email and everything else. but. You know, it's a it's a common question for writers. Like, what makes a good query letter? Like, what was your approach? Like, uh, I'll tell you what my general instinct is: is that you have to be pretty succinct um, because people are busy. You know, you obviously don't want to send somebody like a five page query letter that they're never going to read. But um, yeah, yeah,
2: that's right. What was working
1: for you? You know what I'm saying? What was your approach?
2: I I would send probably about a page, and it would be like. Literally, if, say I'm pitching a story about uh, about the the yakuza or something, then the you know, Japanese organized crime. I would just basically, you know, dream up the the sexiest, coolest scene of the coolest young gangsters ever in the history of Japan, <laughs> and and just write that, and just you know, act like this was real. Or, but it was so plainly not real. But it was just, this, you know, because if, if anyone knew this much about any important Japanese gangsters, why would they be pitching a magazine article to details? You know what I mean? But, but that, I would just write these crazy scenes, these fantastical scenes, and send them, and and people would bite because it just it sounded so great. I mean, I saw it like, I'm, I'm, like, I'm trying to pitch a movie, basically. Uh, I'm just trying to you know, to entice someone to want to read the next page. And so the query would just be really this, you know, incredibly vivid uh, little character sketch of 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 or scene of, of of whatever it was I was trying to sell the story about.
1: And these and these the people in the the people in the scene were actual people you knew, or were these pure fabrications?
2: I think they were pure fabrications. <laughs> I believe. I believe I was just trying to get the subject. I was like trying to sell the subject and, and, and you gotta remember, I mean, people in America don't know anything about anything. And so if you're trying to pitch a story about the Japanese organized crime, you you would basically, I would, I would be like, I'm going to, it would almost be like, I would take a scene from Goodfellas and just dress everybody differently <laughs> and, and, you know, have them driving different kind of cars, but, but it would be, this, it would, so, so it would be like this myth, this, this, this myth that the, anyone could have recognized, like, oh, this is a gangster myth, only it's, like, a little different, and that's what makes it fun. Right. You know, just like, and, and so that was that's sort of what I was doing, and I just did that over and over again, and, and, uh, and I wrote some good stories out of it. I mean, then I would have to actually go and find the story, and then a couple times I did have the editor say, wait a second, this isn't the thing you sent us. This is not nearly as, you know, amazing as, as that query letter. And that did happen to me, and, then, and sometimes I had editors kill stories uh, because the story that I gave them wasn't as fantastic <laughs> as, as, as the pitch. Um, but, uh, but every story that was killed, I eventually published somewhere. Um, and back then, I was also writing a lot for British magazines. And you could do the same story for an American magazine as you would do for a British magazine. So you could sell a story to, like, to details and then sell that same story to like, Arena or The Face. Or whatever these cool British magazines that were around back then. So how did he, um, and how, then
1: he, how did you do that? How did you manage to get into British magazines? Like it sounds like you were pretty good at hustling and.
2: Uh, well, there was this there was this newsstand in, in in Roppongi, near where I lived in Tokyo, called the Aoyama Book Center (ABC). And I used to just go, and and because it's Tokyo, your magazines are coming from all over the world, and they're all just given equal. You know, sort of equal placement on the newsstand. Here's British Esquire, here's American Esquire, here's British GQ, here's American GQ. So, you would, I would pick up, be as likely to pick up a British magazine as an American magazine because, I don't know, whatever, the cover image or the cover line, something drew my attention. So, you, I was as aware of British magazines as I I was of American magazines at that point, just because of of the international nature of, of, of Tokyo. And I think that's why I got this idea to to deal with British magazines. And then I'm trying to remember that. Also, like, this photographer came from Details to shoot this story. Uh, this, he was a German photographer from London. And he came to shoot this story. And he said, oh, you should talk to this guy at Arena magazine, Dylan Jones or something. He'd be interested in you guys, you know. And so so I just kind of heard about it that way. But but, And, and part of it was the time difference with England was a little better than the time difference with America, like cause America, you kind of had to be up until like midnight or 10 o'clock to to uh, talk to somebody in New York, whereas in, in London around 6 p.m. Tokyo time, people in London were getting into the office. So you know, you kind of yeah, I was you know, no, I, I was I was a hustler. I was very aggressive, uh, very cocky, and but just working it. And and I, I think the same thing still applies to some extent. I mean, I, I imagine. I wonder if in the era of the of the internet with uh, email, whether editors are just so inundated with solicitations from freelance writers that they just don't even look at them anymore. You know, because I think the whole thing about the fax was, and, and getting the fax numbers required a little bit of kind of a con job on the assistant of who you were and what you were doing, you know, because they didn't want to give out their boss's fax numbers that easily. And so, um, it, so and, and I guess offices didn't have that many fax machines. And so... It, it was it was it was fortunate for me that that the facts existed because I could send all these things in. I couldn't imagine doing that all by mail. Like how it would just take months and months to get everything going, get anything going. But I don't know if it's the same if it's the same way now. I know when I pitch stories now to editors, I, I just send them like two lines. You know, but that's but mostly people know me a little bit now, so it's a little easier. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I just send a couple lines and say, what about this guy? What about that? But the other thing? Is that the type of story that magazines do is completely different. It used to be magazines would do a subculture story and it would just be this group of kids in God knows where doing something fucking weird. And whether they're in Japan, whether they were in California, whether they were in, you know, Death Valley, you would just have these subculture stories and every magazine did them. Esquire and and Rolling Stone and details and so forth. And now the subculture story is pretty much over. Uh, because any subculture is, is, is already like a reality show as soon as you're even aware it exists. I mean, like, you know, Jersey Shore essentially is like one, I feel like it's like one New York magazine story blown up into an entire multi-season MTV franchise.
1: Right. Yeah, I you know see, where I see that.
2: Yeah, whereas these things just used to be magazine articles. Saturday Night Fever, it was a magazine article. You know, which, by the way, he later admitted that he had completely fabricated. Hmm. Um, but and it was a great article, and it was a great movie. But but the uh, so I I think it's I mean, part of the change is that magazines basically are running like now it's like ideas pieces or profiles. I mean that's pretty much it. So that's all I ever do.
1: Yeah, well, and and uh, what about heroes of yours journalistically? Like, who are some of your uh, predecessors who you uh, tried to emulate? Like, especially earlier in your career, you know.
2: I mean, again, you know, the, the obvious, I mean, the same ones everyone else, Tom Wolfe, Hunter Thompson, uh, and then, you know, and then certain travel writers, uh, Kapuscinski probably was the one that I looked at as being somehow perfectly embodying the, the sort of literary qualities that I wanted, and then also imparting this, this very powerful idea of the state or country or place that he's writing about. Not necessarily, as it turns out later, he wasn't factually very accurate or concerned with that, but he just was so evocative of of the of the cultures that he was describing and describing or living in that I always read him as being sort of the master of that kind of of fictional non fiction sort of travel narrative um, so yeah Kapuchinsky and Bruce Chaplin, those kind of guys i mean anyone who is sort of i mean I always like writers who are a little bit on the edge of. You know, I, I, like is it fiction? Is it nonfiction? I, I I was always kind of drawn to that.
1: And then what about what about um, you know when you speak about writers who are on or being drawn to writers who are on the edge? Whether it's like in terms of uh, you know their aesthetic choices.
2: Volman, William Volman, that would be a big one who I forgot to mention.
1: Yeah, yeah. But so do you also? I mean, it's, I mean, I've read uh, you know some some stuff about you online. It sounds like you also. Uh, you know, were sort of drawn to living on the edge with regard to, um, you know, like uh, personal behavior, whether it's like drug use or alcohol, or whatever it would be, um, you know, especially earlier in your career, like how, how big of a factor was that for you?
2: I think those are just personal demons. I mean, those, you know, whatever. I mean, yeah, I, was, I mean, I was a, a, a drug addict for years. And, and I think that was but I that really didn't have anything to do with with uh with being a writer if anything it just screwed me up being a writer. But I mean did, um,
1: but I guess what I'm asking is like did did like you know any of your uh forebears like you know like a Hunter Thompson for example like like did that example was that something you were drawn to and like tried to emulate or did it come about No,
2: I just, I just like getting high. <laughs> I just really like getting high and, and so and and I found myself in uh you know spending time in countries with where where there's relatively easy access to to, you know, to, to certain opiates and, 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 and there were incredibly lax pharmaceutical laws so you could go into pharmacies and get you know <laughs> a, wide, a wide range of drugs and I think that that was probably the uh, uh, I think that was just sounds just, of me there's no, nothing literary about it it's just, it's just somebody who, who, who likes the, the feeling brought on by, by certain chemicals
1: So what was your drug of choice or were there multiple?
2: When it, it span, but by by the end, pretty much opiates.
1: Okay, okay, and then like, but I mean, there was some speed in there as well, correct? Or you, and you've written? Yeah, about,
2: yeah, yeah. Written, sure. No, written, no, no. The, there was a stretch. Yeah, yeah. There was a stretch. There was a stretch of uh, of, uh, of 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 too. Not nice. not so not so long that my teeth ever rotted or anything.
1: So you had you had the ability to sort of pull yourself back. Like you always had like one toe in reality, essentially. or?
2: Mm. I I think so, but I did have to go to treat, You know, I did have to go to rehab. Oh, you did. Okay. So, oh yeah, yeah. No, no. I, I I I I stayed clean after that. I was clean for uh, over a decade. Just no you know, no. Now I, I drink a little bit again, but I, I mean, at that point, I was. I I didn't I didn't drink or take a drug for eleven years.
1: What was the What was the Was there an instance or like a bottom that you hit that you that finally sent you into rehab, or did you just get tired?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was. Yeah, I mean, there was there was a uh, I'm trying to remember. I, 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 this, I guess my, I wrote about this in my second book. I think standard deviations is is about my sort of that's my my dissolute memoir. Um, I think I think for me, looking back, and, and again, we've already discussed how flawed recollection is. But it seems to me that what I began noticing was was that I was I wasn't writing very well. And, and I think, so I felt that I was, my, my, my drug use had in negatively impacted whatever meager talents I had. And, and I sort of did this calculation that like, maybe there's some people who can get away with being drunk or being high and, and, and still write well, I, I'm not one of those people. I don't have the talent that I can afford to waste any of it or, or not have all my faculties wh- when I sit down to write. And that's just me. So I think that was that was a, a big part of it was realizing like if I'm if I'm going to get anywhere as a writer I have to knock it off because right. it's just too hard it's just too hard you well, know writing writing is is hard enough you really don't need to to handicap yourself
1: well and it's interesting to hear you say that because I feel like uh, you know a lot of writers these days especially uh, at least experiment with pharmaceuticals. Uh, you know, and I, when I say pharmaceuticals, I, I mean that in like a, a, a literal way. We're talking like prescription meds, not, not just like drugs in general. But I feel like the use of prescription meds like Adderall or.
2: Well, that's uh, the big one, right? Yeah, the, the ADD medications.
1: Yeah, the ADD medications, like almost. And, and it's not only just in writing, but you know, you read about this stuff in magazines and how, um, you know, really competitive uh, university settings are sort of like prime prime ground for this sort of abuse where like kids are taking uh, these drugs as a way to get an edge so they can stay up later and concentrate longer and you know somehow outperform their peers and like you know there's a part of me that's sort of drawn to that like wow what if i because i've never taken it like what 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 would happen to me and my work and you know even if it were just for one book if i did this would it somehow give me some sort of superhuman focus or something or would it just make the writing
2: i I mean it it depends i mean Depends on what your output is normally. I mean, if you're—I mean, I, I can't—I really can't write more than a thousand words a day, anyway. And and I do that in probably an hour or two. So I mean, I don't need any more focus than that. Um, the tricky thing as a fiction writer is that drugs tend to occupy the subconscious. That's why they feel so good. They make you subconsciously feel a little better about things than you would otherwise. And if you're a fiction writer, you depend on your subconscious. Your subconscious isn't making the connections that your conscious isn't making. It has to be. I mean, that's, your subconscious tells you to put, you know, some weird character in, in, in this earlier chapter that only later, 100 pages later, do you realize you need. There's a per, There's a reason that person's in the book. And I believe that if you're on narcotics and you're on drugs, your subconscious is not going to do that work for you. So it, I think writing becomes a much more conscious project. It becomes a very, you're, you're, it's, it's basically what your what consciousness comes up with then becomes all the ammunition you have. You no longer have the subconscious working for you. Um, so I, I think it's risky. I think it's very risky because I think you're, you're, like I said, it's hard enough. You don't want to handicap yourself. You don't want to take away one of your weapons, which is the creative process of writing fiction you're you're relying on your subconscious to do a lot of your work.
1: Well, and it's also, it also just seems like a, a kind of a game of diminishing returns. Like it might work once, you know, like, like, or, or well, twice, like maybe you can
2: like, wait, wait, work. Don't knock something working once. Yeah. Right.
1: <laughs> but it's like, you know,
2: you think about like
1: somebody getting really stoned and writing like an amazing screenplay or something.
2: It happens. Yeah, it, it happens. can happen. So, and, and one is a hell of a lot more than zero. Right. Right. So, you know, so I don't know. So that's why I don't, I don't judge it. Like I said, I just figured it out. For me, it doesn't work. Whatever, you know, with, with, whatever pickles your pickle, that's, you know, that's your business. Well, but it's, um, inter- um, it's
1: interesting, too, that, like, you had writing as, you know, it sounds like was uh, clearly your priority. Like, a lot of people, I think, who get um, lost in drug abuse or whatever don't necessarily have something like writing that they can use to either measure um, where they are, you know, or they don't have something that they're passionate enough about. To, to to change. Do you know what I'm saying? It sounds like writing saved you in a way, or, or helped you sort of like pull yourself back.
2: Except that in the larger sense, it pretty much ruined you. I mean, besides, besides the fact that it's a fucked up way to spend your life. Yeah, <laughs> in, within inside of it, there's little patches where maybe you can, you know, you can get you through a little bit of a rough patch. But as a whole, it's a hard life. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the joke. I mean, in terms of writing fiction, that's the joke. When I felt, uh you know, I, I didn't. I didn't get a short story published until 2006, and it was pretty much the first story I wrote. And I gave it to to the Paris Review. I gave it to, to Philip Gorey, which is because they had published nonfiction of mine, and uh, and they published it. And I was like, oh, this is fantastic. It's a, you know, it's, it, cause it's 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 look how easy it is. You just write a story and they publish it and they pay you. And then uh, like I, 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 you know, later, I realized like you know, it was it's almost like a a curse. Because it made me, it made me sort of pursue this thing, which was actually a much harder way to 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 make a living, get published, everything. I mean, everything about fiction is a lot harder than nonfiction in terms of getting stuff published. So, so it's 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 you know it's 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 a hard, it's a very hard life, and and the, someone giving you a break is actually not giving you a break. They're actually kind of <laughs> fucking you over. <laughs> in, well, that, I mean, just, just, in that you think it's going to work.
1: Well, yeah, and and just getting people to read. Anything like you know, like, and uh, I think you've said this before uh, in interviews or whatever. But it's like you know, you're uh, like the people that you that are actually in the book that you know that are somehow like models for characters, or even like you know, one for one. Models.
2: I have I've, there have been people I've written about in books, nonfiction, real people <laughs> who the books about them, and they can't be fucked to read it. Yeah. So so it's- no no, getting anyone to read is impossible. So forget getting anyone to read a novel, which is what I'm trying to do now. I feel like it's really. A, 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 just, just a hopeless undertaking.
1: Okay, so okay, uh, so let's because I feel the same way. I feel like it's almost like it's it's what Sisyphus and it's silly. It's a uh, super discouraging, but it does sometimes happen, and certain writers do somehow generate this like mass uh, interest, and especially on like the the literary side of the ledger, you know, as opposed to like popular fiction or genre fiction or whatever, which sometimes has um, a little bit easier. Go of it. Like, what do you think it is that makes? Like, do you have any sense of why a, a certain book or a certain author is able to catch on, um, while someone else whose work is of um, a really high quality, you know what I'm saying, is for for whatever reason doesn't find an audience? Like, can can you suss that out at all, or is it just some big mystery? No, it's,
2: I, I, it's, it's, I really think it's luck. <laughs> I really do. I know that's not, and that, that's coming from someone who's been pretty unlucky. So of course, I would think it's luck. Uh, but, yeah, I, I just think it's luck. I think certain books at a certain time, you know, the, 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 for whatever reason, the timing is right. They get the right – it falls into the right hands. That person writes the right review. Da, 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 da. You know, this, this is confluence of lucky events happens, and then suddenly the book takes off and it becomes a thing. But for the vast majority of, of books, we know that doesn't happen. Um, and nobody is reading all these books to ascertain, you know, whether this is indeed a meritocracy we assume it's not a meritocracy. So if it's not a meritocracy, what is it all based on? Uh, it, it, it's based on, on some strange luck that a certain book has or a certain person has and, and, and another book won't have. You know, so, and you can't let it, and, and and the one thing you can't do is you can't let the idea of what kind of book seems to be getting luckier than other books, right? Oh, like, you look at these books about this, female heroine, in, you know, imperil, and so you sort of go through and look at it and say oh why can't I just do this I, I don't think you can do that I don't think you can recreate a sort of you can I don't think you can recreate luck I think it's just you got to write the book you're going to write and then and then hope that yeah, you get lucky and that's why I just say basically it's writing you're spending years of your life writing a lottery ticket that's what you're doing and and th- and there's not you know and, but, but that said there is some fundamental uh, urge or desire or or, or drive to to communicate, to share, uh, to get feedback. It's what we all want somehow. We're all competing for each other's ears. We all want each other's attention somehow. And it just happens that as writers, you've chosen sort of the you know, as fiction writers, you've chosen one of the least efficient possible means of doing that, um, next to poetry, perhaps. So you know. So we're all laboring for. We're all somehow laboring for for. For for to have
1: to be heard, and most of us aren't being heard.
2: <laughs> most it's, of us won't be heard. Most of us won't be heard.
1: And so, do you feel like, uh, let's say that you get lucky, let's say that things happen cosmically for you, and this book takes off, and suddenly, uh, you know, you're a literary darling, and your books are selling millions of copies, and like the whole dream unfolds for you, or for anyone that has this happen to them. Do you think that there's an obligation? Is there any obligation on the part of somebody who does get that luck to then turn around to the the community of writers and try to somehow uh, help or share the wealth? Like do you sense, do you feel a sense of obligation or is it basically just every man for himself and if it happens go have fun and enjoy it or
2: do you I, don't why? What, I, I don't understand what form the obligation would would
1: I don't know it's just I mean, it,
2: I mean it just would seem- it be Giving I mean, would it be giving advice? nobody wants
1: that yeah i don't know i don't know what it would be <laughs> i just I guess i'm just wondering like I mean if it really does come down to this sort of like uh, unnamable and uh you know uh, unpredictable confluence of events, like if that were to happen for me uh I, you know just knowing the way that I'm made up, like I would probably feel guilty about it. <laughs> Uh, I'm Catholic or something. I think I would. Well,
2: I, th- I think, I think what, what I've noticed happening to the people who, who I've known or something like this happens to, um, I think the best of them just look at you and shrug and say, I was lucky. Um, and then they can break down here are the three lucky things that happened to me in the way to my book becoming a bestseller or whatever. And I think the, the, the worst of us suddenly go from thinking it's all a matter of luck to believing there was something inherently great about them. Right. that made this all happen, that it is a meritocracy and the very best rises up, And that's why my book, of course, was on the front of the New York Times and da, 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 all this other stuff happened. So, I, I mean, I think it, it, it really comes down to what your sort of base character really is. And that that's how you'll be when you're a success as well. Um, you know, I, I think there is something different about you know, if it happens when you're in your 50s or happens when you're in your 20s, I mean, I think that's just different. It's just different. You know a little more about life when you're a little older and, you know, you've you've seen a bit more and you know that this thing bounces different ways. Um, And then forget it when you're even older, when you're my dad's age and he's in his 80s. I mean, you know, I think everything even takes on, you know, less rhyme or reason as to why things happen. Uh, And and you don't know how things are going to turn out. Something that seems fantastically fortunate to happen to someone it, it, you know when they're 25 you, you could realize only later years later that was the worst thing that could have happened to that person right you know that they were exactly the person who could not handle that type of success and they're dead by the time they're 35 or 40 you know so so you just don't know the thing you wish for look most most people don't get the thing they wish for all the time i've never gotten the thing i wish for i want all that good stuff we i want all the cash and prizes everybody does you know but at the same time uh I sort of realized a couple of years ago, I think that even if, if you gave me sort of, I mean, what, how, what about my life would really change if something fantastically wonderful happened with Triberbia or whatever? Well, I suppose I'd get more money for my next book. Um, I'd get a bigger advance, but that's kind of it. I would still be just writing my next book. I would still just be working on my next thing. Um, and so in a sense, it's 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 sort of just like playing ping pong i mean that's all it really is, is is what do you get when you win a game of ping pong you just get to play another game that's what you get so you write a book it does well you, you get to write another book if you, all you hope is that your book does well enough or that you can convince somebody to take another chance on you so you can do it again you know that's that's really what it is so so you know i don't know i look i i have no idea how to manage a career i've done a terrible job of it and and considering you know, but I still feel lucky in terms of I've gotten some good stuff. But I've not, I haven't done a great job, uh, you know, as, as a as a careerist at all. I've traveled around too much. I didn't. I should have just stayed in New York and played that game and gotten to know more people and gotten better connections and done all those things that that you're supposed to do. But I'm too sort of antisocial myself to kind of make to play that connection game in the way that you sort of have
1: to. Well, but it sounds, um, but it, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I look at your bio and I think to myself, God, this guy's done so much. You know, you look at just the list of magazines you've written for the places that you've lived. Um, you know, th- that, appe- then, that, appeals to me. Like, I, I guess we might be similar, but that just appeals to me way more than, you know, sitting around, uh, in New York or any city for that matter. And, and trying to like network my way up. Do you know what I'm saying? That sounds. Awful.
2: Well, oh yeah. Well, yeah, I, I agree. But, also, if you look at someone who's written for too many magazines and gone too many places, you look at them and say, "Wow, that guy's really had to hustle to make a buck." <laughs> so, whenever you see a writer who's 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 just written for too many magazines and sent too many things, you're like, "That guy has been hustling."
1: <laughs> well, a lot, of, a lot of people these days are, you know. But
2: yeah, yeah. So it's really just like, yeah, you know, they're the guy who's been working for his, you know, for his daily bread um what uh, what about
1: what about like uh you know because it brings up interesting questions because you know you have worked for like establishment journalism like writing for time magazine is about as establishment as it gets in the american press um or new york times magazine you know and then that's not necessarily said um uh, to diminish them in any way that's just you know that just seems to be the fact but then at the same time uh you know you've published with indie presses and you've sort of operated in that realm as well so you've sort of you know, crossed from world to world a little bit. Like, can you talk about that? Like, has it been instructive in any way, you know, or is it, is it pretty much the same, but just on different, um, you know, levels of scale?
2: Well, I mean, I, uh, my mantra has always been that I'll, I'll play ball pretty much with anyone who play ball with me. And when it comes to, when it came to, to, in journalism, when I could get a job at Time and become a, a writer at Time magazine at, th- at that time in my life, that's, what I, that's fine. I'll go do that. Sure. That sounds, that sounds fun for me or interesting or different, or I'm going to learn something. And I learned a shitload. I learned a ton writing for Time. What did you learn? I, I, I learned how to express things concisely. I learned how to crunch down exposition to extract what was the most important piece of it. I learned how to, to give information in a pleasing and entertaining manner. Uh, I learned when when to stop giving information and when to start uh, moving the story forward again. I learned about pacing. Uh, But again, the biggest thing is I just learned how to explain things. I learned how to explain stuff, and not in a boring way, not in an academic way, but in a way that was sort of pleasing to the eye. And that's a knack that serves you very well in fiction. Just not, not being afraid to just... Step in and say, "Here's who this guy is, and here's his background. Here's what he did, and and that allows you in fiction to to give much more history, to move through time in a different way. Uh, you can move through time. You can move through years if you have to, if you know how to vary, if you know how to skillfully enough explain." of years
1: so yeah no i want to stop you there because this is something that like i've sort of learned by trial and error through the years in my own work but like i'm always as a reader um, extremely impressed whenever i see an, a, a very deft time transition in fiction or nonfiction, for that matter but when somebody jumps years or you know just shifts time in a significant way but does it subtly just from like paragraph to paragraph uh, that's the kind of thing I sort of like clap for in my brain. Is that?
2: Yeah, it's it, because it's hard to do. It's really because hard to it, do. because there's times when you yeah, and and, and I, I had to learn that at, at somehow I learned that at Time Magazine. I learned to be confident in 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 making those kind of choices and doing that kind of work. Um and and I don't think I mean I think it's something you have to learn in a way. I mean I think in and learning how to you know and, and so. I was. That's. It, time Magazine taught me a lot about writing. It taught me a lot about writing that I use in in writing fiction, all the time. It taught me sometimes don't be afraid to be obvious, you know. Don't fucking show. Tell me, you know. Don't just do some telling here. Right. Um, and and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that was that was important stuff. And so, I always tell people, and 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 and, and, and this goes to your point about the indie press world which it tends to be more populated by MFA types. Um, It's much more sort of it seems to be it seems to live more in the the MFA world Um, and that's a world where there's very little crossover into uh, into journalism into mainstream journalism into mainstream writing and I think it's it's something I always tell people that you know this is I mean one of the best things you can do is, is get a job writing stuff that you don't Really care that much about because you're going to learn an awful lot about just the craft of writing and and what works and what doesn't work and you're not emotionally invested in it. You're not emotionally sort of you know in, in involved in this story where you know this really cool thing that you love really doesn't make any fucking sense in the story, but you want to leave it in there because it's yours. When you're writing a story for Time Magazine, you have no or I didn't have much emotional investment in any of it, so I could just be ruthless about this is slowing me down out. This is a little boring out.
1: Well, right, you and, know, this, and, and if you if you didn't do it, then your editor most likely was going to. So it's not like you could get too attached, anyway, right?
2: Right, right, exactly. And so, but there's something very good about that, and it makes you more rigorous. Um, in ter- in terms of the like, small presses and stuff, I mean, you know, I, I just those are the people who publish short stories. Right. So if if I, I want to publish short stories, I was going to have to deal with some with some small presses. I mean, but I didn't know anybody in that world, so it's funny. There was a, a newsstand. Uh, on Broadway and it's like Broadway, it's like Broadway and Howard or Broadway and Broadway. I think it was like Broadway and Howard. It's pretty, pretty near Canal Street on, on Broadway, not far from where my office used to be. And, and I would just walk up there and they had a lot of, of, uh, of literary journals in there. I don't know why they just had, it was like these Bangladeshi guys that ran this newsstand, but there was just a ton of literary journals in there. So I would just go in there and, and uh, you know, grab two or three and, and buy them and bring them home and and I would just and and obviously there were some that I'd heard of before like the Canyon Review or whatever but there were some that I just never heard of but I would buy them and and take them and and read them and this was this was probably from 2006 to 2008 or so I was a two year period where I was reading a lot of I began to read a lot of literary journals because I'd never read them before in my life and I became and and, and that's how I began to send stories to magazines was I I would I just Began reading them and thinking about it and then just sending stories. So that's how you end up in some indie presses because, you know, I picked up a copy of the New York Tyrants and I looked at it and I was like, what the fuck is this? Um, and you're kind of just looking at it and you think, well, I could write for this. And so you'd send in a story. Um, and same thing with Hobart or whoever I, you know, wherever I was publishing. And and so I think that was, that was that's why, is because I didn't know that much about literary journals so i was trying to find out about them so so if you do that you're going to end up writing for some some small presses some some indie presses
1: so what about uh like next steps i mean it seems like you're sort of transitioning uh, or at least partially transitioning into uh, a fiction career like is that where you see yourself or you think it's always going to be a blend of journalism and fiction and nonfiction? uh like will you continue on every front or are you trying to sort of narrow your uh your efforts down in some way
2: well, I mean I'm 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 always doing uh, nonfiction. I'm always doing journalism. I mean mostly I, I have a contract with uh, Bloomberg Business Week, which is, you know, a really straight magazine. It's a good magazine, but it's a straight magazine. Um, no fiction. <laughs> and uh, so I, <laughs> I write that they, for,
1: don't I, a, they don't have a poetry section in Bloomberg? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well they, 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 a lot a lot of poetry review they they're doing. The, uh, uh, no, so I, I do, uh, so I write for them. Like I'm this week, I'm, I'm going, I'm doing a story for Playboy, uh, you know, right now. So I, I keep doing the, the journalism kind of, that's that's sort of how I make, make my money. Um, and I have another, I'm working on another novel. I have another novel which is due, I guess the contract is for June next year. Um, because this Triverbia was a two book deal. Ah. Um, so, so I have that, and I'm, I guess I'm about halfway through, and it, you know, it's at the part where it's feeling sort of disastrous and, Shitty and, and like it's not going to work. It's a
1: great place to be, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's, but I mean, I mean, the, I mean, the ones I've I've written enough books where I know, okay, this is just part of it, and it either really is shitty or maybe it'll be okay. Um, but there's no reason to stop just because it feels shitty now.
1: And then what about uh, uh, you know? And the other element of it is that you're, you know, you're juggling all this different stuff, and you talked about how journalism had informed you. Um, you know, in a variety of ways, like related to like the technical aspects of writing and compression and time transition and all that stuff. But uh, what you, we didn't uh, talk about is the the discipline that it probably has given you. You know, when you're working in a deadline uh, environment, oh, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff has got to be good for you when it comes to getting into the chair and actually writing the fiction, you know.
2: Oh, I, yeah, I don't I, I've never had writer's block or anything like that. Um, in fact, I'm I'm not very sympathetic to writer's block as a plea for for uh or as as an explanation for for not being productive i I see it as a failure of will i mean look i can always sit down and write something it may be shit and it very often is but i can always sit down and write it and and yeah i think you know journal when you're writing for the check i mean the good thing about journalism uh, is that when you're writing for a paycheck you you get over whatever your inhibitions are pretty quickly um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm both fortunate in that I've, you know, I've written for a living for a long, long time. I've been supporting myself with this for what, 20 years or something. So I'm fortunate in that I've been doing that. Um, but, but I'm unfortunate in that I think it's, it's, it's removed me a little bit from, from the, uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. From, from the, from the, culture of literary writing uh, you know in, in America and, and that's why I had to sort of undertake that investigation into the subject by buying literary journals and reading them um, and and then and then and then at the same time being amazed at how good so many stories were being amazed at how you know, how much good writing there is going on that I previously didn't really know about uh, and so for me it's it's sort of it took me many years to get back to the place or to get to the place where I guess every MFA student is at when they finish grad school which is they're very aware of this culture of this literary culture in America such as it is of the small magazines and and HTML giant and all this stuff Uh, you know I just I didn't know about it until I was much older and so for me it was it was it was both a revelation and 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 sort of exciting in that, in that, here was this whole world that I didn't know existed that I could now investigate and try to be a part of.
1: Well, I could keep talking with you forever. Uh, it's been so fun to to hear your thoughts on all this stuff and to hear about your life and your career. And uh, I wish you all the best with uh, Triburbia, and uh, I hope that uh, I hope that it breaks out for you. Thanks. All right, folks, there we go. That was Carl Taro Greenfeld. Go get his novel. It's called *Triberbia*. It is available now from Harper. You can find Carl online at carltarogreenfeld.com. You can find him on Twitter, at Carl Taro. And he's on the Facebook, too. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. If you want to read my Twitter action... Uh, The show has a Facebook page, and if you would like to email me, write me a letter. The address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music, as always. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Closing thoughts, final things to say. Uh, I am still a little bit worried about this suspicious mole. It's bothering me. I don't know what this thing is. It's a growth of some kind. Life is fragile. Shit can happen. I hate Google. I'm never Googling anything ever again. Please remember that Henry Miller died of cardiovascular failure and that Ezra Pound once called Hitler, quote, a saint and a martyr, end quote. Thank you for listening, uh, everybody. I appreciate it. I'm grateful for all the support. Uh, I'm sorry I told you about my suspicious mole. I know I sound a little paranoid. I'm going to the doctor tomorrow. We're going to get this thing sorted out. In the meantime, please uh, pray for me.